They are the best. We are in a series uh, looking at the book of Philippians. And so I would invite you, if you have a Bible, would you take that out to about here? You know, uh, in your Bibles, Philippians is in the New Testament. It's a letter written to people that lived in Philippi. So they were the Philippians. That's why the letter is named Philippians. Uh, And it was written by a man called Paul. Uh, We also call him the Apostle Paul. Paul has a very interesting story, and and, and we're going to talk about that. You've heard some of it. Maybe you know some of it. and he, and he wrote this letter. It's an, it's an encouraging letter. It's a letter that highlights unity. And it also highlights the things that aren't unified. And so uh, we've talked a lot in these last number of weeks about what it looks like for a people, a congregation, a group of people uh, to be unified. But, but now Paul is kind of shifting gears a little bit here in chapter 3. You may notice that we, if you if you were here last week or have been paying attention, and uh, you realize we le- we left a little bit out um, in our preaching series, chapter two, twelve um, through thirty. We didn't leave that out because it's something to be left out, but we wanted to make sure we got the main points. And so you are more than welcome to read the rest of Philippians two uh, to get and understand what Paul is talking about. But here we are uh, moving into chapter three. Philippians 3, we will read 1 through 14. Paul says this, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what uh, what is ahead, I press on 
toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenward, for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Amen. The main question I want us to consider today is this. How is your belonging to Christ? You may be not satisfied with the wording, and I at first wasn't when I wrote it. But I want us to hold on to this question said in an intentional way. How is your belonging to Christ? I can tell you a million things about my belonging to a family, to my previous gym memberships, to my email subscriptions, to my alma maters, to my denominational affiliations, my sports fandom, my social media groups, and more. I belong to a lot of things. You belong to a lot of things. You see, I have made some intentional choices about the things I belong to. Each of these things requires a, a commitment, offering a portion of myself, even if it's just a small portion, to this thing that I'm belonging to. I give my, my time, my energy, my creativity, my work, my love, my attention, my care to these things I belong to. So much of that is a, a good thing. It's good to belong to things. It's good to participate in things. It's good to give of ourselves to the things that we belong to. But perhaps like me, sometimes you wonder, where does all my time go? My energy, my creativity, my love, my attention, my presence, where is it all going? I wonder if you could even start a list of the things that you belong to. How many things would be on that list? As I even considered that question, I thought that would take some time. You know, there are a few things that I love preaching about. I love preaching about uh, God's love. I love preaching about miracles and healing and, or about God doing very unexpected, upending things in the world. I feel like I could preach that all day. But there are some things that really aren't my favorite to preach on. And one of those things is circumcision. <laughs> you can laugh. But when uh, we come to uncomfortable, literally I chose that word uh, specifically, when we come to uncomfortable things in scripture, it can be an invitation to consider what is really being conveyed instead of just ignoring it and hoping it goes away. All right? So here we are, Sunday, February 6th, talking about circumcision. Circumcision was God's idea. Okay, way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, God made a, a spiritually binding agreement called a covenant with a man named Abraham. Some of you know this story. And as part of that agreement, God asks that his people, specifically men, take on a physical change that bore witness to their belonging. It wasn't a haircut. It wasn't a tattoo. God sought a physical change for those who claimed to belong to God in their complete vulnerability. Naked and exposed, it would be obvious to them and to anyone else that they encountered in that state of nakedness and vulnerability that they were different. 
Perhaps it was that God wanted his people to know in the depths of their vulnerability that they belonged to God. And so for thousands of years, God's people embodied their belonging through circumcision because it was what God wanted. And then because it was what God wanted, it was what the law required. And so on the eighth day, eight days after a male uh, baby was born, they would be brought to the temple for uh, the act of circumcision according to the law. And as, and as it is with so many things, human uh, people, human people, duh, uh, humans have a tendency to quickly thwart things to make it uh, about something else. Humans are very quick to thwart things into uh, power and control and status and gain. This thing that was meant to be a precious and vulnerable mark of belonging became a status symbol, a way to wield power over others, a point of pride and of ownership, not of humility and belonging. Now to the Philippians, Paul is addressing the Philippian church who has come under the influence of these people called Judaizers, all right? Judaizers claimed that, that uh, people who were not born Jews but came to faith in their Messiah, Jesus, had to be circumcised. That if they converted into belief in, in, in this Jewish Messiah, that something would have to change on their body. And here's what, where we get to Paul's argument that he's making right here at the beginning of chapter 3. He calls those Judaizers, those people who are trying to encourage others to take this mark on their body, he calls them dogs, he calls them evildoers, he calls them mutilators of the flesh. He doesn't leave much to the imagination. None. Not so much. He just calls it exactly as it is. Well, those physical markings used to mean something... They no longer become the basis for belonging. You see, something has changed. And Jesus changes everything from the way it used to be to the way it will be. Where those who belong to God used to be able to claim their confidence in their literal flesh markings, God was making a new way, a way of vulnerability that goes very far beyond nakedness. It's something of a soul vulnerability. And then Paul gives testimony to this transformation in his own belonging. He used to be one of the big shots, one of the best of the best, the belongingest of belongingers, Okay. And he did everything that was right. I want you to look with me at, at, at his, um, his list. It starts at the end of verse 4 uh, and big, uh, through 5 and 6. Okay? He says uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day as the law required. Um, credential number one. Credential number two, he was of the people of Israel. Now, this means that he was not only, uh, that, that not only his ethnic and religious identity was correctly Jewish, uh, but he was, it was also his racial identity. He belonged and belonged. He was Jew through and through. 
Then he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, he belonged to the tribe that gave Israel its first king, David. And this was something to be particularly proud of. And then four, he says uh, he is a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he spoke the ancient language of his people, unlike other tribes uh, of Israel that intermarried and spoke other languages of the region. Number five, credential number five, in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee, meaning that he was one uh, who knew the law so well that he excelled in school and then he was able to enforce the law. That was number five. Uh, Number six, as for zeal, he persecuted the church, meaning he was so devout to his faith that he would violently oppose anyone who threatened it. And then number seven, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Meaning he did everything the law required him to do. He did it perfectly. He was practically perfect in every way. It may sound silly to us because we aren't in and we don't understand the cultural and religious environment that Paul came from. But I wonder if we perhaps put it into different, more common words of our religious and cultural environment. You'll remember there were seven credentials. Try these credentials within our, within our culture. Perhaps uh, uh, we come to church thinking that we have these credentials, that we were uh, baptized or dedicated as an infant in the church born into a family that believed in Jesus and practiced their faith in their home. Maybe we were a pastor's kid. Maybe we've uh, memorized scripture. Maybe we know the books of the Bible in order. We can list all of the disciples, including Matthias. Uh, We have the fruits of the spirit song stuck in our heads. Credential number five, maybe we go to Bible study every single week. We even become a Bible study leader, and and we make sure that everyone has completed the study each week. Credential number six, perhaps we have ostracized or neglected those that we disagree with theologically or personally. Credential number seven, perhaps we have used our adherence to biblical morals as a basis for our understanding of our own salvation. Are all of these things bad? No, not at all. But do we, do I, use them as evidence to reveal our belongingness to God? Certainly. Certainly. It's as though we have come to believe that armored with enough outward actions, we will be able to prove our closeness to God. Well, I did my Bible study every single day this week. God is close. I went to church three out of four Sundays. God is close. I yelled at that person because they are theologically wrong. God is close to me. In some ways, we actually use these things to protect ourselves from the vulnerability of complete surrender to God. Paul says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Even more, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul considers all these credentials garbage. He actually uses a different word that's more akin to dung, but in a more vulgar sort of sense. I'll let you uh, fill in the blanks there. You pick the word that you want to put in there. Uh, They are this sort of thing that, that Paul says he can just do away with. These are the extras of a life of knowing Christ and being found in Christ. This isn't the food of the faith feast. It's the leftovers. It's the excrements. But too often we have made these credentials, we've made these things the meal that we eat. And this food, this food stuffs us with the notion that just a little more Bible study or a little more biblical morality or a little more devotion or a little more prayer or a little more perfection or a little more rejection of the world or a little more preserving of the church will bring us, will bring me into my belongingness with God. We make these things to be like excess flesh around ourselves, our souls, to keep us from truly vulnerable, vulnerably, entirely belonging to Christ. Paul continues, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Certainly, circumcision is a vulnerable thing that the, uh, to, to experience. But the work of dying is even more vulnerable. Perhaps you have been with someone who has died or is in the act of dying. There is nothing more vulnerable Paul moves the Philippians along from thinking that circumcision was enough of a vulnerable sacrifice. He says, actually, the most vulnerable thing that you can do, more than nakedness or exposure, is to become like Jesus in his death. This is the new mark of those who belong to God. Those who have begun to release their life to the one that they belong to. There is nothing more vulnerable. Where the law made a physically vulnerable sign of belongingness to God, Christ made an entirely embodied sign of belongingness to God through death, a complete release. I've never preferred uh, to look at a crucifix. Perhaps it's because it wasn't a part of of my faith tradition. I'm more used to crosses uh, without uh, the carved form of Jesus' nearly naked body hanging on it. Like like this cross is just plain. There's There's no Jesus' body here. We can imagine it, but we don't see it every day or every week or every Sunday. But as I've considered this text and this sermon and the idea that Paul hopes to move believers uh, to considering a death like Christ's, I think it's important for me to consider a crucifix. 
to consider that Christ's real body and soul was offered in death. Arms outstretched, nothing to save himself with, very little agency, and even less ability. And that this was the moment of his greatest glory, naked, dying on a cross. A life laying down love. My favorite word in in this whole passage of scripture is this word in verse 11, somehow. Somehow. If you have your Bible, I invite you to underline it. With all the certainty and the boastful language that Paul uses throughout his letters, because he wrote a lot of them, this one stands in, in, in sharp contrast. This somehow is a slice of evidence, I wonder, of Paul's cruciform life. His former life was branded by confidence and conviction. He had the credentials. He knew the law. He knew what was right and wrong. He did it exactly as it was supposed to be done. Faultless, he says. But now in the shadow of knowing Christ, the certainty that he needed is no longer necessary. What he knows, what he knows is that Christ suffered and died vulnerably. What he wonders is how that vulnerability brings forth the resurrection of the dead. Somehow, he says, somehow it will be. Somehow it will be as Christ owns it. Somehow he will experience it in his belonging with Christ. Every week in in staff meeting, we uh, read the the text, the preaching text that's coming up uh, uh, for the Sunday. Uh, And so we allow it to speak to us, to, to form in us, something before we ever hoped that it would form something amidst our congregation. And so after we read the the passage in the NIV Bible, which is what I um, read from this morning, we we were having a discussion. And and Pastor Scott, thank you, I didn't even ask you if I could do this. I'll give you money later. Um, He uh, said, we have to hear this from the NRSV, which is a different translation of the Bible. Uh, It's the one that's most common or most um, matched to the original language in Greek. He says, I I want you to hear this. Uh, And of course it was profound. So this is what Paul is actually getting at. If you would look at verse 12, specifically that second part, uh, in the NIV it says, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's good. And you can even tell it's a little clunky in English, but, but hear what he's really trying to say. He's really trying to say, I press on to make my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I'll say it one more time in case you want to write it down. I press on to make my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ has made me his own. Somehow. Somehow. The Bible study didn't do it. The scripture memorization, the church attendance, the justice initiatives 
pursued the poor, served the children, cared for the widows, fed the morals, upheld the disagreements won. None of these did it. Somehow, somehow, Christ has made us his own. Somehow we are belonged. This changes the the whole of us, the most vulnerable, the most naked, the most holy parts of us. And so if we are Christ's own, we live in a manner somehow that looks like it. There is boundless freedom in being Christ's own, and there is also great cost to being Christ's own. You see, our whole being, our whole being is ever shaped by belonging to Christ. There's a huge difference here. Do you notice it? So many of us thought that you had to do the things and then belong to Christ. You had to say the prayer and then belong to Christ. You had to be baptized and then belong to Christ. You had to be confirmed and then belong to Christ. You had to to actually be sorry to belong to Christ. No, Paul says you belong to Christ. Period. And then, then we start realizing, oh, there's things in me that I actually am sorry for. Oh, I want to be, I want to make this known to people. Baptism. I want to participate in the meal with the people of God so that I might be nourished for the things ahead. Communion. I want to read scripture to get to know this one that I belong to. I want to study it. I want to help others study it. I want, to, I want to know it, not so that I know it, so that I can be saved or know it, so that then I can belong, but I want to know it because I'm already belonged. Our belonging to Christ inspires all these things. It becomes something I get to do. Belonging to Christ means that our ministries, the things that we do, occur within God's heart. It means that our ministries of of mercy and justice occur in the regular rhythm of God's heartbeat for those things. It means that our, our reading of scripture speaks to and helps us understand this one we belong to. It means... uh, belonging to Christ means that we can approach those that we disagree with and we could find something in common. We belong to Christ. You belong. Maybe I belong too. Belonging to Christ means that I can lay down my perfectionism as a means to an intimate and loving relationship with Jesus and just be in relationship with Jesus. And so I ask again, how is your belonging to Christ. How is your belonging to Christ? Here at the communion table, uh, this is, is the meal that Christ himself invites us to. You already belong here. There is nothing to do to get a seat here. There's nothing you have to beg for to get an invitation. You belong here. And here, you begin to transform because Christ, who belonged to you, is willing to transform you. And so as we move to this holy sacrament with this wide-open invitation, 
I would like us to take just a few moments to settle our hearts, to settle into our belongingness, and to allow our children to come in and settle with us too. May we do the same thing.